0: I'm excited about uh, our text this evening. This actually, um, this, this sermon came together really, really smoothly on Tuesday, and uh, that's deadly for a pastor because if you are done that early, then you could keep diving in, keep doing more studying, and uh, the more the week went on, the uh, more exciting, excited I've become about this message, and, and uh, hopefully you'll see why. Our, our scripture passage is the ninth and the tenth plague um, that's found uh, as Moses is trying to uh, cajole Pharaoh with God's help into releasing the Israelites um, from slavery and and to head towards the promised land. And so we're going to look at the ninth and the 10th plague, and you'll see why I chose those two um, shortly. Let's look at first, chapter 10, 21 through 23, and then we'll look at chapter 12, 1 through 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the place where they lived. And now the tenth plague, chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. "...tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect." And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of I- community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they are where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs, and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. My kids love these details. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is God's word. Let's ask for his blessing in hearing and applying it. Heavenly Father, as we read... And begin to apply, it's such a foreign context. We don't have animal sacrifice. And to the average person in the streets, this this would sound really foreign. So I pray that you would help us make the cultural leap, but more importantly, you'd help us to make the spiritual leap and see how crucial this passage is for our everyday lives. We pray your help in this, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest themes... In the Bible, one that is at the heart of the Christian message, heart of the gospel message, is this idea of atonement. Atonement is making amends for wrongdoing. To put it in simple terms, biblical atonement is paying off the debt of sin that each human being has accumulated. Now, if you've grown up in the church, or even if you're from another religious background like Judaism or Islam, this idea of atonement or even more specifically, substitutionary atonement when something or someone pays that debt for you is an acceptable, understandable concept. But not so with the average American. The idea is so old fashioned, so far fetched to our individualistic mindset as secular Americans. If you were to approach any given person in downtown Chicago, or even downtown Elmhurst for that matter, and, and walk up to them and say, ask them if they have a debt of sin that needs to be atoned for, they would either look straight ahead and keep walking faster, or they would tell you where you could stick your fundamentalist judgmental ideas. Our culture would ask, why would we need atonement, greediness, lust, jealousy, selfishness, gossip, Ego problems, none of these things are illegal unless they cause you to do something extreme. But until then, lust all you want. Be greedy, be selfish, be arrogant. It may hurt your happiness, it may affect some of your friendships, but you're free to live how you please. It's up to you. Doesn't that seem to sum up our cultural's moral thinking? Hopefully none of you here are saying, wait a minute, nothing, that doesn't sound so bad. What's wrong with that? Well, I want to argue that even the most secular person, after stopping for a moment and really considering things, really thinking deeply about life and sin and the effects of sin, that even the most secular person would come to the same conclusion about a debt that's created when someone is wrong as the Bible does. Even my three-year-old little girl, Phoebe, who's uh, she, she's four in five days, but I remember when she first turned three, she started using this expression that she's used for quite a while now, and when someone wronged her, and it was usually her older brother, uh, she would say, you have a consequence, Sam. <laughs> and uh, although most of that is her repeating some of the things that we have said as parents, she's still picking up on this sense of I've been wronged, and therefore, something needs to be done about it. For us adults, we have that same feeling. As soon as we make scenarios personal, we'll quickly agree that a debt, a negative something, emerges when someone wrongs us. We get this sense of not only consequences, but a debt owed to us. For instance, let's say that someone runs a key down the side of your car from the back to the front, totally ruining your paint job. You then find out it was your next-door neighbor who intentionally did this. You don't just slough that off. There's something now between you and him. Even if he pays for the car to get painted, there's still something between you. There's a debt that has been created. How about this scenario? Your, Your colleague... Who has been helping you on this big project at work gets the credit for the job when he's been only helping you and you either have to just let it be or you have to go to the boss and say it was actually me who did most of the work and then you look like a whiner there's now debt between you and your colleague i'm trying to keep the examples mild and somewhat uh, superficial to show my point But if you ratchet up the scenarios a little bit, it makes the point even more clearer. Like the woman who steals your husband away from you or the college boy that intentionally treated your daughter like trash. And now the point of debt for wrongdoing gets made even stronger. We feel this idea of debt so naturally that phrases have emerged in our language like He's going to pay for that. I'll make him pay for what he did to me. Or she owes you for what she did to you. When we sin against someone or someone sins against us, a debt emerges. The same principle applies, but even more so when we're talking about sin against God. Now, God is God, and he doesn't need me to defend him. And he's not some petty God that is easily bruised. Nothing like that. But God is perfect. Perfectly loving, perfectly just. He's relational. And he has unwavering standards and principles. And when we break those principles, when we break those rules, we end up hurting either ourselves or one another. And when we hurt ourselves or one another, we hurt people that are made in the image, the very image and likeness of God who created them. So if I lie, I not only hurt my relationship with you to whom I lied, but I sin against God who created you and set up the principle of honesty. If I commit adultery, I not only sin against Laura... Who is created in God's image, but I sin against God, who was there when I made my vows to Laura. Every sin against ourselves or one another is a sin against our creator. Even sins that may possibly only affect ourselves, like lust or greed or materialism or jealousy or arrogance, if we manage it so it doesn't really affect other people, we are acting out against creation, against the creative order. We're marring it, causing it to break down, making things go against they were, the, the way they were intended and designed. So we accumulate debt against each other, but more seriously, we accumulate debt against God. I need us all to be on the same page. I need us all to understand this crystal clearly so before we move on i'll share one more angle at this debt thing and this uh i think originally was c.s lewis but i tweaked it to fit our digital age let's say that you have a digital um well let me let me back up a little bit let's say that god is going to allow you not to meet his standards but just to meet your own standards okay okay So when you get to heaven, you're not going to be judged on God's perfect holy standard. He's just going to judge you according to your standards, right? But there's this digital recorder that's hanging around your neck. And it's activated every time you make a measurement or a judgment, a moral measurement or a moral judgment. So every time you say, oh, he ought to be doing this, or can you believe she did this, or how could they do this, it records it. And so at the end of your life, God hits the playback on that digital recorder and out comes all the judgments, all the measurements that you have made for other people. And then the story of your life is played underneath it. Will you need atonement? I know I will. So that's atonement. Payment for the debt that our sin has accumulated. That's the first principle you need to know. The second principle you need to know to really get into the passage tonight is a more confusing idea, this idea of the firstborn bearing the sins of the family. Quite a few times in the Bible, including our passage, it mentions um, the firstborn. The firstborn received most of the inheritance back in the ancient Near Eastern culture. The firstborn was the family representative it was the future of the family. Now, this idea is completely foreign to us 21st century thinkers. We so don't think like that in our culture. For better or for worse, we have slipped into a probably the most individual, I, I could say without a doubt, the most individualistic time in history. We look out for ourselves. If It doesn't matter what my brother did or didn't do it's his life it's his deal what he does has no effect on me not so in the ancient near eastern culture not so in many cultures today in other parts of the world but yet on the other hand we still have traces of f- this family culpability idea embedded inside us you know the old saying that it's not what you know but who you know well this sort of sheds light on this a little bit oftentimes there can be Either favoritism or discrim- discrimination based on family connections. So, if your if your uncle, your brother, your sister screwed up ro- royally, and uh, they connect you with your family, you may be discriminated against. Likewise, if your if your father was a saint or your brother was in, you know just a man of integrity, you you could be linked into that. So, there's a little bit of traces of that even in our culture. Another example would be. Do you remember the uh, the Columbine tragedy, that dark event that occurred in 1999? Most of the news stories were, um, I can't even remember the names of the two boys, the two seniors in high school killed 13 people and injured another 21. And the news stories back then talked about this idea of family culpability. The parents should be held accountable for the their kids' actions, but how much, to what degree should they be held accountable? We have largely lost this emphasis on family, but it's still very prevalent in other cu- cultures today, and it was a major, major emphasis in the ancient Near Eastern culture of Genesis and Exodus. God worked primarily through family systems in the Old Testament, and actually in the New Testament. With Christ's death and resurrection, God continues to work through family systems, but it's a new spiritual family, the church. At any rate, the firstborn is the representative of the family and of the family's future. And if you've been reading the Bible uh, with us through this story program, then in in the second week, you hit this... this uh, this Abraham story that, that I'll show you how it connects to our passage and then connects to our life in a moment. But in Genesis 22, we have this incredible, incredible story where God calls Abraham to offer up his firstborn Isaac as a sacrifice. It turns out that God is using this only as a, a test of his faith, but Abraham doesn't know this up front. Listen So how this goes down in Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, the only reason why Abraham doesn't flip out when God asks him to do this is because of this idea of atonement and firstborn. If Abraham would have said, take Sarah and go a- offer her up as a burnt op- sacrifice, he would have wigged out. He would have, he would have said, God, what do you mean? But because of this idea of the firstborn as the representative of the family... And the idea of atonement, he, he takes it somewhat in stride. And Abraham's not afraid to push back. Just a few chapters earlier, he's pushing back on behalf of his nephew Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. What if you find 50 righteous people? What if you find 25? What if you find 10? He keeps pushing back and pushing back. But here, God says, offer up your firstborn, your only son whom you love, and there's no pushback. It's because of this idea of of atonement and the firstborn son as the representative of the family. Listen to how that happens. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them set off together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? See, that Isaac was a smart fella; He knew that something was amiss. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld to me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, Mount Moriah, it will be provided. And then God goes on to speak to Abram and says, Because you had faith and trust in me, I will make your descendants great. And through your descendants, through your offspring, through this son Isaac... You will bless all the nations of the earth. So that's exactly what happens. Abraham thrives. He has one kid, Isaac. And then Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. But Jacob has 12 boys. And it just sets this family rescue mission, this family plan on fire. And... Um. Isaac's son Jacob, who has the 12 kids, gets named Israel by God. And so if you're new to the Bible, this is where the whole Israelites come from, the descendants of Jacob or the descendants of Abraham. Isaac uh, um, gets renamed Israel by God and ends up prospering in Egypt, largely through Jacob's 11th son named Joseph, whom Pastor Greg preached about last Sunday evening. The family grows over and over again, continues to grow. And about 400 years later in Egypt, multiplies to a population of about a million plus. The downside is they become so numerous and so productive that the Egyptians are afraid they're going to take over, so they enslave the Israelites. Listen to Exodus 1, through 8-14. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt... Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come, become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The rescue mission takes a turn for the worst. And they're bound in slavery in Egypt. Ruthless. Merciless hard work. God sends a rescuer, Moses... And when we come to our reading we're at the ninth and 10th plague now God performed 8 incredible plagues to sort of uh, try to get Pharaoh's attention and try to get uh, Pharaoh's uh, to, to uh, let the, the uh, Israelites go but Pharaoh is stubborn he's not willing to budge that's a whole lot of slave labor to give away it's probably the, the uh, enslaved Israelites are probably driving much of the economy and infrastructure of Egypt. Not to mention there's a big power play going on between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh considers himself the God of the land. He considers himself a deity. And here Moses is this little representative of God who's just doing a number on him. And so he doesn't want to budge. And so the first eight plagues hit. Pharaoh waffles a little bit, but remains strong. And then comes our plague. And the plague number nine is darkness. Three days of darkness. And then pl- the tenth plague hits. And after three days of darkness, the tenth plague calls for at twilight, lambs to be slaughtered. And the blood of the lambs posted on the, uh, spread on the doorposts. Of the Israelites' home. And if you read this passage closely, you'll see that God is bringing temporary divine judgment on the land, on both the Egyptians and the Israelites. If the Israelites don't put that blood, that atonement blood, on their posts, they're goners. The judgment will fall on them too. In fact, in another, a little bit later in Exodus, God says, Don't even step outside your home if you're not covered by the blood the destroyer, the angel of death, will get you. It's temporary divine judgment. And the temporary escape for that divine judgment, the temporary atonement for that divine judgment, is the blood of the Lamb. And so the tenth plague hits. Every firstborn male is killed throughout Egypt. And the Israelites are spared and are finally free from slavery. The Israelites are set free from years and years and years of bondage. Some estimates are about 400 years of slavery. Some even estimate as high as 600. The Israelites are free and they're now on their way to the promised land. The land promised by God to Abraham. God then commands the Israelites to celebrate the Passover meal every year to remember God's rescue, remember God's salvation, how he freed the Israelites from the tyranny and the oppression of slavery and from the powerful hand of Pharaoh. These events are actual historical events, but God's word has deeper levels. And the Israelites' ordeal and Moses' involvement with the plagues and the Passover lamb all play out on a spiritual level that is crucial for you and I to get. The Passover celebration is inaugurated with uh, the rabbi, or the presider, or the father of the household saying, this is the bread and they take the matzah. This is the bread of our afflictions that our ancestors bore so that we could be free and enter the promised land, and it's broken. Fast forward some 1,450 years, give or take a few, and there's another group of Jews celebrating the Passover. And this time, the leader of the Passover stands up and says, not this is the bread of our affliction, but this is the bread of my affliction. This bread is my body, broken for you. And then Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of many, goes on to suffer the cross. And in Luke chapter 23, listen to the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Luke 23, 44 through 46. Now, it was about the sixth hour, about 3 o'clock, and darkness, remember the ninth plague, darkness, for three days? Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. From 3 to 6, there was complete darkness. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus calls out with a loud voice, My Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. It's a parallel to the Exodus. Three hours of darkness, and then at twilight, when the Passover lamb was slain, the Son of God was slain to atone for our sins. Where are you at in the story of the Lamb? Interesting historical note is that Jerusalem was built on Mount Moriah, the very mount where God provided the ram so that Abraham wouldn't have to sacrifice his only son. Remember that in Genesis 22? And to this day it's called, The Lord Will Provide. He provided for Abraham... And then later, through Christ, he provides for you and I. Atonement for your debt is ready and available. Your debt has been paid. Will you let the blood of the Lamb be sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart? Have you beheld the Lamb of God and let God's love and a sacrifice atone for your sins? Have you been changed by that atonement? I love it that God says, when you eat this, eat it with your robe tucked in and your staff in your hand. In a way, Christ says the same thing. On Resurrection Sunday, he says, just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Eat the Passover with your robe tucked in and your staff in your hand. So the first question is, have you received the atonement from the Lamb, And the second question is, have you been changed by it? Have you let the values, principles, and decisions of the Lamb change the way you've lived? Has it sent you out on a mission? Are you headed to the promised land? Are you bringing the promised land into your family, into your marriage? Are you bringing the promised land into your workplace? Are you bringing the promised land into your basketball group? Are you bringing the promised land wherever you go? As we read this week, this story from Exodus, may we not just see the historical events of Israelites freed from slavery, but may it remind us that we are free. Not just free to go about business as usual, but free to join our Heavenly Father in what He's doing around us.